Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Today, we're bringing you a real-time story about growth. Spectre & Co. began with five employees in an 8,000-square-foot facility in Montreal. Rob Spectre and his team eventually grew the company to over 300 dedicated staff. Some of those employees have over 45 years of experience with the company. In 2018, Rob sold a part of the company to equity firm Blue Point Capital Partners, in part due to his expansion plans, which include the brand new $5 million facility they recently opened in Las Vegas, giving the reputable and esteemed supplier a strong foothold in the U.S. Today, we're bringing you a glimpse into a part of the real-time growth story of Spectre & Co. In January, we traveled to Las Vegas to host SKUCon, and early the next morning, Rob treated us to a tour of the new facility. But this isn't just about a factory tour. Part of our team, Mark Graham and Dave Schultz and I, joined Rob and his VP of Manufacturing, Juan Martinez, to view the progress on site and also to understand how a Montreal-based company considered many different avenues for growth. Parts of today's SKUcast were recorded literally on the road as we drove with Rob and Juan to the new facility, and we also bring in highlights from our SKUCon conference that all relate to this topic of growth. We talk about considering the risk and calculated risk, plus how strategic account development might be the crucial key to tactical growth for both suppliers and distributors. The voices you'll hear in today's episode are Rob Spector, president of Spector & Co., Juan Martinez, VP of Manufacturing Spector, and we bring you clips from SKUCon featuring Catherine Graham, Common SKU CEO, interviewing Sam Cates, Chief Sales Officer at Spector, plus some great advice from our friend Jeff Becker at CODIS Design on this subject of strategic account management and growth. Today's episode is brought to you by CommonSkew, the work-from-anywhere platform that powers your connected workflow, enabling you to process more orders and dramatically grow your sales. To learn more, visit commonskew.com. Now, here's our episode featuring Rob and the Spectre & Co. team on lessons in strategic growth. You and I love these factory visits. We love visiting with suppliers because yeah. there's so much going on. There's so much innovation. There's so much craftsmanship. There's so much yeah. artisan work that's happening. Um, we that we we now know we take for granted a lot of the times. But but what you and I have always done is we've walked away from some of these experiences and asked ourselves, what did we learn from that? Yeah. And as I had time now to think about our visit with Rob Spector and Juan Martinez and their entire crew and their expansion in the Las Vegas facility, I realized this is an amazing story about growth and and an obsession around growth and how they can do it strategically and how they can do it right. And Rob shares a little bit behind the scenes of some of the tough parts of actually getting to the point of where they are. So we have a couple of lessons to share today, and this is applicable to both distributors and suppliers. It's all around overcoming challenges to growth and thinking proactively about it. So Mark, what were your thoughts? And lesson one for me was how the Spectre & Co. team had to figure out, it was a truly logistical challenge for them, how to figure out how to take a Montreal-based company, expand into the U.S., which was, was a majority of their business, which when we take it for granted as distributors because we don't have 
a footprint in manufacturing like they do, but what a challenge. What were your thoughts as, as Rob unpacks this story about their growth? Well, what became clear to me is that Spectre is, is an established brand in the industry, great brand recognition, but their challenge is that they manufacture all of their product in Montreal and right. that's a choke point. And by them looking into the U.S. market and making a significant investment on the ground in a U.S. location, building a U.S. distribution center was really, I think, the only choice that they had if they were looking to continue to grow and penetrate the U.S. market further. Yeah, And that's, I, I think, is a, a scary crossroads to be at because you're standing at that crossroads and one, you could kind of stay status quo and I think that's fine. You could probably bump along with some good organic growth. Option number two is looking at making an investment in the U.S., which is going to come at a tremendous cost, financially, yeah. time, resources. And so it's fascinating where we were talking to Rob as to how he was unpacking that and right. unpacking the risk reward and how it is that he chose to make that decision. And also how they had to consider the fact that, well, maybe we should do all of this offshore. So it's also a micro story about what's happening in North American manufacturing and how reshoring has become a big topic now and, and a big opportunity. And we're watching this story unfold in real time. Here's Rob sharing the story of their decision and the different obstacles they had to consider. So we went through this entire exploration to seek out where we could actually find capacity. So the first step was, okay, I'm gonna call my China factories, I'm gonna see what they can do in terms of, in addition to manufacturing the products, actually inventorying the products, decorating the products, and shipping the products. So we spent weeks interacting with, I think our top three or four vendors, top vendor in each category, put down the pricing, and then we went to get the freight cost. We assumed the freight cost would kind of um, equalize with our domestic labor costs. That would have been true pre-COVID, but with the COVID freight rates, right. it took the entire um, scenario out of whack. So we, we weren't able to do that. <clears throat> then we looked at Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, whatnot, and you know continued to explore Mexico as an alternative, but that wasn't helpful that you know it was very difficult to find capacity there and then funny enough one of the first projects that we had when I sold to Blue Point Capital my PE partners in March 2018 was to open up a USA facility which we kind of abandoned because we were busy with other stuff and we're like okay what about actually opening up a USA facility so I go to the my PE guys and I'm like hey We've basically done full circle, Montreal to China to Latin America, and now we're looking at <clears throat> possibly a, a U.S. facility. And then the funniest thing is I get on a call with a real estate agent in Los Angeles. I get on the call with him, and he starts laughing hysterically. And I'm like, what is so funny? He's like, you're literally the first person in a decade that's called me wanting industrial space in Los Angeles. <laughs> really. <laughs> and he's like, let me paint the picture for you. And I, my numbers may be off. He's like, there's 3 billion square feet of industrial space within the Los Angeles area. The, I think there's 2.99 billion rented. So he's like, even if I were to find you a spot, 
it would cost you an arm and a leg. So here I am, after this huge high, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go to LA, I'm gonna open up in LA, and to be crushed, like, one phone call. <laughs> so then, um, we hired Ken Seidel. I don't know if you guys know Ken. Oh, yeah. He used to be with Alpha, right? He's, yeah, he's working on the Bella Vegas facility. Right. Reached out to Ken, I'm like, okay, Ken, here's, here's a story. We were gonna open up in LA. Um, that's not gonna happen, obviously. Um, do like the West Coast, we had a bunch of people from Sweda who were willing to relocate. So we said, let's do a site selection analysis on the entire West Coast of the US. So he did that. Um, and at the same time, Sam kind of put together an analysis, a SWOT analysis in terms of where we are, how we've been doing, how we haven't been doing really well in the US. And um, we basically looked at, I think, San Antonio, Houston, um, Phoenix. Phoenix, Vegas, and then me, Juan, Ken, and Angelo. And Angelo came out, and we basically chose Las Vegas as our as our facility. And was it because of available inventory? So uh, it's funny because we, we had we looked at like the basically the the top factors. So freight inbound, yeah, cost of freight inbound, time of freight inbound. Cost of freight outbound, time of freight outbound, blue collar availability, blue collar cost. So we're sitting at, at breakfast because our first day was in Vegas. We're sitting at breakfast on a Monday morning or something. And so we're kind of going through Vegas versus Phoenix because we, we had, were booked to fly to, to Phoenix. We were, booked, we were booked to go to Phoenix the following day. And I'm like, so guys, what's the story? What are our thoughts? And Vegas scored number one, and Phoenix is always number two. In terms of all that, and then we're like. By the oh, way, no, as I was listening to Rob finish that story on audio, I realized th- that Juan Martinez, the vice president of manufacturing, shared a story about how they once looked at Montreal when they were there, and they realized that. Th- when they looked at their Montreal manufacturing, they looked at the building that they had, and they thought, "How are we ever going to outgrow this?" And he said, in, "In no time at all." They outgrew that. And he looks at the Las Vegas warehouse and he thought the same thing. <laughs> then I remember the, the first time that we walked into our Montreal building. Same. And it was the same, same sensation too. that you walk in the corner and then you see the, the whole building and you go, wow, this is massive. Right? And then two years later, we were full. Like, really, we are scrambling to, to put inventory, to add machinery right now. Yeah. So this is the same perspective that it gives me. Uh, when we started in that building. You yeah. see this space, and it seems that it's huge, but in reality, I know that in a year, this is gonna be booming with stuff, it's gonna be inventory, it's gonna be staff, it's gonna be equipment, and, uh, and we are really investing in the best technology that we can So I think my lesson from Rob and from Juan is that be okay with growing. We all talk about how much we want to grow um, and, and how much we want to grow our business. But growing is uncomfortable. It's actually painful. Remember when you're a kid, it's actually a, can be sometimes a painful process. But Juan looks at this new $5 million facility in Las Vegas and goes, we're going to outgrow this too. So Bobby, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think about my journey as a distributor, because we said at the mm-hmm. outset that this is a story that applies to both distributors and suppliers. Right. I remember starting the better part of 20 years ago, and I started out of my parents' house. I was in my early 20s. And after about a year or two, <clears throat> as, as Right Sleeve gathered traction, it became clear that we needed to have a real office. Yeah. And I remember, just like it was a week ago, 
sitting in a, I think it was a thousand square feet, pretty small office at the time. And I remember sitting in this empty office and I just signed a lease and I was literally about to throw up as I was sitting there going, how am I going to be able to afford this? I had no employees. I had no real material overhead up until that point because I was running out of a house mm-hmm. and, and I'd taken this big jump. And what was amazing, it was within what, about six to nine months that we had to take over the office next door. And then another year, the same thing. And then we then moved up to the th- to the top floor of the building that we're in and then ultimately took over almost the entire floor. And, and, and I think the lesson is that if you've got a great idea and you've got business with product market fit and making these investments that are going to make you kind of want to throw up a little bit, yeah, right. <laughs> it usually works out and, and it's that entrepreneurial sort of leap of faith. And, yeah. and this isn't just a story about my right sleep background, but it's a story that we see across the board with distributors and suppliers in this industry that have got that right. great product market fit and they take that leap. And that's what makes this industry so great. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we, if we go back to this podcast and say two, three years and the people at Spectre have already outgrown their Las Vegas warehouse. That's my prediction. Even right. though right now I think <laughs> Rob would say that he feels almost, uh, nauseous when looking right. at this empty going warehouse this, going, yeah. how can I fill this? So. Yeah. Mark, I'll also add this that, you know, as a distributor, we don't have, we don't have, most of us don't have manufacturing and, and, and a footprint like this and we don't have to consider warehousing. I mean, even though more and more distributors are because of kidding and fulfillment and things like that. Um, but where we tend to struggle with the most, I think, is um, talent and, and, and investing in more and better talent. I mean, that talent war is real and hiring the best talent is the reality of how to run an exceptional business today. And it's also probably the equivalent of making those land and real estate and building investments in terms of just that. You talked about that entrepreneurial moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I hope this pays off because we're going to make these investments. Because I don't know about you, but I can tell you multiple times hiring a sales force or going through yet again another iteration of redeveloping our sales structure from commissions to personalities that we had. It was always that moment where you're sort of standing on the precipice going, all right, we, we we have to be okay with the pain of growing. Yes. And I think it's a constant reminder um, as as we as owners in this industry consider these investments. And sure, there are stories where they don't work out. And and I'm not saying it's all it's all perfect. Um, those represent, I think, great learning opportunities. But I think those businesses that, as I said before, have got that brand and that product market fit. Yeah. And that's working for them already, that making some of these aggressive investments in growth often pay off. We don't, we don't see a lot of examples in this industry where distributors or suppliers who make reasonable investments in their growth that they don't pay off. The third lesson I learned from our visit with Spectre and co is probably the most important lesson because I learned it also from multiple voices when we went through SKUCon and that is focusing on strategic accounts for growth because I can recall a time where we were hiring salespeople and we just had this sort of blank slate, right? This open field. Hey, let's hire salespeople because they'll bring in the accounts. But we didn't really have a plan for growing those accounts. So as we make investments in our team, if you don't have a strategic plan for growth, then it's really a moot point. You're not just going to suddenly land sales because you have more labor. Am I making any sense? Because to me, the biggest lesson I learned listening to the Spectre story is tying together what Sam Cates talked about with focusing on one-to-one account development. 
Sam Spectres takes a fairly intimate approach with their sales philosophy, a one-to-one -one connection between your reps and accounts. Why you've chosen to kind of buck the trend around geography, which has been the more traditional way of kind of organizing sales teams. So talk about that. When I was uh, being trained by Rob, who's the CEO, um, it was like my third day on the job, and I didn't know anything, and thought I knew things that I didn't actually know. And he said, we're looking at the sales team, and he said, I'm sorry to swear, but he said, fuck geography. And I was like, what? What does that mean? And he's like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want you to build a team like that. You know, I don't, I don't want that. And I, he didn't really expand, so I had to figure out what does fuck geography mean. Um, <laughs> So what fuck geography means to me now is um, I have worked for uh, you know, supplier companies in the past where the, the leadership, the ownership was four appointments a day, four days a week, you know, log it in the CRM, blah, blah, blah. And what I would ride along on those trips and see was that you had a great relationship over here, but because you had to stay busy, you had to see four or five other people kind of around, and that's an incredible waste of every kind of resource imaginable. And so I helped to build out a team that they may um, do most of their work virtually. They may get on a plane to do an all-day meeting with a customer, just one, because that customer is worth it and that relationship is worth it, and then spend the evening and go to dinner or take their team out or you know, have a bartender come in and make it fun. I mean, this is such a fun business and it's not supposed to be so transactional. And so that fuck geography thing to me meant that I could kind of blow the barn doors open a bit instead of building this kind of old school sort of territory, territory, that's my territory rep, that's my territory rep. We don't have that. We have strategic account managers. And Ashley is sitting there and she's one and she's got accounts in six states. Now there's a little method to the madness. I mean obviously from a resource and, and cost you can't make it. So there's, there's a little bit of, of thought to that, but it doesn't mean that because she lives in Toronto she should only have Toronto-based accounts. It may mean that she has one or two great Toronto-based accounts, but that's it. If that doesn't fit with her personality, if those people aren't the right kind of Spectre-type relationship, I'd rather put her in front of the customers who will appreciate her, understand her, and she will appreciate, understand them. So that's how I interpreted Fuck Geography, and it's, um, it's different, and it, but I think it's, it's worked well, and it's helped us build stronger relationships. I found that to be a very impactful part of the story, this focus on strategic accounts. And the other thing that Sam and Rob were making clear is that they are not restricted to geography. So that if there's a particular account in Seattle where right. there's a great fit between one particular Spectre account manager and that distributor in Seattle, but there may be another distributor across the street who's got a better cultural fit with another account rep at, at Spectre, then they're not going to carve it out by geography and say, hey, it's so-and-so that is covering all these particular accounts. And that's been really exciting for us on the technology side. And you think about how the common SKU experience connects those suppliers and distributors, regardless of geography, that you could yeah. be an account person in Montreal head office servicing an amazing distributor in Arkansas, California, Vancouver, Toronto, and Halifax because of that data sharing and the ability yeah. to connect digitally. And so it's been really exciting for us to see that part of our model really proliferate. And, and uh, it, it's... It feels to me like a very modern approach that these suppliers are taking that are focusing on investing in these strategic, strategic accounts. Those are the ones that represent the greatest opportunity to grow. 
Right. And I think the key there is what I'm learning from certain suppliers, particularly boutique suppliers, let's say. Uh, Robbie used that phrase, so I think it's safe to say that phrase. And when I say boutique, they may be huge, but they sort of serve a boutique market. Isn't that is yep. um, strategic accounts versus national accounts? I think yes. at one time in the industry, national accounts was where it was at. But what we're learning is that even like, let's look at CommonSkew. You know, we're talking 1.4 billion in revenue and there are so many strategic accounts within that amount of revenue, right? And so you could take, national accounts to me gives us like this blanket approach, um, whereas strategic accounts, this gets back to my distributor hat on in terms of, of developing a sales team, is saying, okay, here's the types of accounts that really can grow our business because they get us, they understand us, they vibe with us. For example, here's Rob to talk about how he thinks through that particular strategic okay, account you know, process. Our, our product may not appeal to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Or they may not get it, or they may not care about it what we do from a merchandising and product perspective. So we've always been very focused on what I call quality meetings. So I know a lot of suppliers are more interested in how many visits a supplier sales rep will call on. You need to visit 20 distributors a week, whatever, 20 companies a week, whatever. We've always been focused on, you can spend a whole day with one guy. Yeah. If you, right. if you have the right meeting and right. the right time. Right. And so we've been very focused always on spending quality time with the right company yeah but now we feel we need to focus more time on the one-on-one relationship not that we don't have them but you know with covid and remote working and and consolidation you know our relationship is really with the distributor sales rep because if you look at the larger distributors um there may be a handful of distributor sales reps, we call them DSRs, that really enjoy working with us, that want to work with us, that can work with us, that should work with us. So we need to educate those 250 guys. I don't need to sell all 20,000 distributors. But if you give me 250 guys that are selling my products every day, that are calling me every day, emailing me every day, that's that's what Mark, let me ask you this. When I say strategic accounts versus national accounts, what do you think? I think as you say that a, a national account typically is a basket of accounts that are across the country and there'll typically be one or two people at the supplier that will focus on them. And it's really difficult to provide the same kind of service, the same quality of service because you have so many different parts of that national account. Some may be bigger, some may be smaller. And yeah. I think from a supplier perspective, that's got to be really challenging. I think focusing more on a strategic account basis I think personally, it's a more efficient way of being able to assign supplier resources to focus in on those right customers who can really drive that particular volume. Some might call it an 80-20 rule, right? In terms of being able to focus a ton of resources on these great strategic accounts. And some may be multi-million dollar distributors and others may be uh, smaller distributors, like a one or a two person distributor that has the capacity to grow significantly. And so right. I feel like that's, that's maybe where the difference is, uh, between those particular approaches. When we were at SKUCon, we had, um, a session we called the tipping point. And what it was, was three distributors, three different stories. And we wanted to know what was the tipping point in their business that led to their growth? What was the key decision or a couple decisions that led to their growth? And I'll never forget Jeff Becker with Codas Design because 
bear in mind that this is like a principle that repeats itself through most and many successful businesses. So it's worth always talking about in terms of that. Jeff Becker fired like a, a, a certain number of his clients so that they cre- could create a path to growth. Too is that 55 million, in part you got there through attrition. You fired 1,200 of your 1,600 customers. Great job. Oh, yeah. I went back and actually looked at the numbers after talking to you, and I think we fired like about 950. Uh, it was about six, six million. <laughs> See it plus. Yeah. Six million dollars, <laughs> about six million dollars in customers. Um, probably, maybe like 60% of our customers basically moved on from at the start of last year. Why? What, was it purely revenue thing per client, or did you decide a type of client? What was it? Yeah, I mean, we looked at the size. Uh, we looked at the size. We looked at people, customers who probably wouldn't spend, we didn't think would spend 25000 in a year. Uh, I know that I always reference uh, Jim Collins from Good to Great on the hedgehog model. And I've always talked about this hedgehog model, but for the last 20 years, I didn't know what my hedgehog model was. I, I like a lot of us, I just sort of sold to everyone. But we've doubled down and refocused and... I'm like this now, and so we said these don't fit, and so we asked them all so I know I can grow by moving on from and opening the bandwidth up for my team to really focus on the customers we want. And so my point to tie it together is that it's just not about, this is both a supplier and a distributor story in terms of focusing on the right kind of accounts, the right kind of growth, and the right kinds of partners that will help us achieve that growth. Mark, one example might be, I... Right Sleeve is the type of distributor that would would have been in Spectre's wheelhouse. And you grew along with Spectre. Don't you think that's probably a good picture of what we're talking about in terms of the right account and growing with the right type of partnership? I mean, I've I've had a 20-year a relationship with Spectre when I think about my former distributor background. And you're, you're absolutely right that we... We grew considerably with them because of this great strategic account focus. Right Sleeve wasn't the biggest distributor in the industry, but as we grew, we grew alongside Spectre. And there was a a great focus on our needs, a great focus on our clients. It was a great relationship through the CommonSkew platform. And that was exciting for us. And of course, now no longer being in the distributor business, it's really exciting to see where Spectre has has since moved in terms of where they're now going and, and doubling down on this continued growth and finding those additional right sleeve type clients, yep. the additional right sleeve type strategic accounts. And it's it's a it's an exciting strategy as they as they invest in the US. Yeah. The last lesson I learned from Spectre and Co. in our visit really came from Juan Martinez, and it talked about hiring the right people who have the capacity to learn and who are hungry to grow. And it's a truism that bears repeating, but um, I was really impressed with Juan Martinez. He's an immigrant from Mexico City with an industrial design degree. He landed in Montreal, and for 23 years, he's led a lot of the manufacturing innovation at Spectre. And I was really impressed with Juan because of the way he thought about how we're going to grow. And I asked him what was the number one challenge in terms of their new development there in Las Vegas and, and specifically around where they're at right now, which is hiring people. He had this to say about looking for the right kind of people. 
hardest part. This, um, again, it's, you know, I, I, I say every time that I rather install 30 machines than change the mindset of 30 people. Say that again, you would rather? Install 30 machines in a layout like this, yeah. do all the mechanical, electrical, pneumatic, because that is on total control. Than having 30 people that, uh, that don't have the right mindset to work in, 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 in our teams. So it's very important that we select the right people on this project. And I think that it's probably, I wouldn't say the hardest part, but it's one of the focal points of my involvement and development on this facility. I want to make sure that we have the best people that appreciate all the effort that goes around it and that can, uh, can thrive. Like really one day can say, like me, you know, 23 years ago we started this project in Vegas and I'm still here. I mean, you, you have no idea how much pride that, 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 that represents. Especially to me, I was a new immigrant. 35 years ago, 30 years ago in, in Montreal, right? From where? From Mexico City. So, and started in this company as a pen printer. So, uh, I don't know, I think that it, that says something, not only about the Spectre, but about the, 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 the opportunity that can this building can represent for another group of people like these kids that we have over here. And if you work on a place for 10 years and you have your processes over those 10 years, it's very hard for you to change, yeah, to change the way you do things. And yet people ask, okay, you like innovation? Everybody says yes, because it's very positive, right? right? Everybody, nobody says, oh, I don't like innovation, but in reality, Nobody likes innovation because if I walk now, right now and I take your recorder and I take it and I give you another one that you don't know how to operate <laughs> right. it, yeah. you're going to go, you know, why? I like this one. I don't care that there's a new one or a right. better one because right. I, I'm used to this one. Yes. So that happens with every piece of equipment that we have over here yeah. and in Montreal. So we need to manage the mentality of the people to make sure that all our processes, all our equipment, ultimately all the services that we offer to our clients are in tip-top tip shape. As we close this episode, I'm, I'm real curious what other thoughts you had, what we learned from hanging out with Rob and Juan and the team at Spectre & Co. So I think there were two things that jumped to mind. One is I'm really excited as a part of this industry to see continued onshore investments by the industry and particularly the suppliers. And so the the ability to, uh, and, and so what Spectre is doing in the U.S. market is a great example of that, investing in a warehouse space, investing in, in domestic labor uh, to be able to increase their footprint and increase their business. I think that's great for uh, both of our countries, the U.S. and Canada and North America, and I also think it's great for the industry. So mm. um, I, I applaud suppliers that that make these continued onshore investments. I think the the second observation that was was kind of cool for me, and I, I'm curious on your view of this, is that I think this is the very first factory visit, and believe me, we've done many of them in our time, mm -hmm. yep. where the factory was just being built. Right. So we, we, we basically walked into a blank canvas. Uh, there was no racking, there was no machinery, there was maybe taped out and, 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 some, uh, and some certainly some pl uh, advanced plans, but we didn't see a factory before our eyes. We just yep. saw a, a blank canvas, a blank warehouse. And I, I found that really exciting to to hear Rob and Juan and some of the other Spectre colleagues paint a picture as to what this was going to look like. Because in my mind, I'm like, 
I can see it, but I can't quite see it like you, like, like you gentlemen can. Right. And, and that to me was exciting because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to listen back to this in a year or two, three's time right. and, and to either, <laughs> and hopefully this has been a stunning success for the Spectre team. Hopefully they've outgrown it. Um, they were actually talking about some nearby warehouse space and maybe a competition with Amazon for some additional space. I thought that right. was fascinating, but all, all too often we go in and we visit factories that are humming and are operational and that's really exciting as well. But I found this particularly unique that yeah. we were walking into a space and about dreams that were about to come true or hopefully come true. I'm sure they will. And, uh, and, and to me, I was particularly, um, uh, pleased to have that experience. So really, really thank Rob and Juan and the whole Spectre team for giving us the sneak peek about, uh, about their, um, unfolding vision. Yep. Spectre and Co. will be fully operational March 1st. Um, and what a great story. And I want to echo Mark's thoughts, uh, Juan and Rob and the team. Thank you for inviting us into your business home and watching the expansion in real time. I agree with Mark. It was really fun. It was like looking at a blank canvas and hearing how the, the gears were spinning in terms of how they're literally going to build this out, hire the right team. So it was a fun story focused on growth. And again, just another proud moment for our industry. When you can see the kind of innovation that can happen around the kind of creativity. We didn't even get to Rob's amazing product innovation because we were just so mesmerized by the, the, the real-time story that was happening. But it's another great example of some incredible entrepreneurs in our industry. So hats off to you, Rob and Juan and the team, and thanks for having us out. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.